Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Daniel Duncan. Uh, for our normal weekly um, review this uh, week, as promised, uh, we're bringing you the best years of our lives. Uh, but before we get to that... I think we would probably be remiss of not at least acknowledging um, what's going on with 2020. Um, I don't want to go into full depth or depth with a lot of this stuff, but um, there, there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot going on in the country. Um, a lot of it, it seems very sad. Um, I have publicly stayed silent on a lot of these things because not, and not because I don't feel I could say something. It's, I don't know how to add well to the conversation. Um, and sometimes if you don't have anything good to say, not say it at all. Um, we're putting out our normal content, but we do acknowledge this has been a tough year. And ultimately, um, the world will go on as it usually does, but we've seen a lot of people needlessly die this year in a way that is new. Um, I'm not quite 30. I'm going to be turning 30 here in a, in a few weeks. Um, but th this is different. And it, it's just sad. So. There are seminal points in history where you basically think the world as you know it is ending. But humanity and especially this country have been able to rise like phoenix from the ashes. Um, you can go back to the Civil War. You can look at uh, where things were as a nation um, and the squalor we had at the turn of the 20th century. You can look at the Great Depression. World War II seemed like, a, like the world was coming to an end. 9-11. Um, yeah. Okay. And what we have here is a culmination of two things, which is an abject rejection by a portion of society of science and the emergence of cloistered bigotry and racism that has reared its ugly head. Usually both must see the, or see the light um, before the virus can be killed. And I'm not meaning the COVID-19 virus. I'm talking about the lack of being thoughtful when it comes to science and uh, knowledge and uh, the inability 
to uh, deal with racism. Um, I come at this in a different perspective. Um, I tend to be rather pragmatic about these events because I've been in my 56 years involved in a lot of different aspects of it. Having grown up in a a city with a large minority population, um, but still, um, and let me just say, I have known a lot of police officers, and they were very fine um, men and women. Okay, careful with I, your phrasing on that one. I think that there is a percentage of them who do abuse their power and authority. Um, there may be some additional ones who lack the empathy and understanding of race and of culture. And it's really those individuals who have um, put a um, chalk mark on the profession as a whole. And I think that that's difficult. My biggest problem is, is the brotherhood of police officers has a tendency to rally around behind officers who act unjustly. And that only tends to cloud the real image, which is the, uh, that we should be dealing with, with this inherent problem instead of trying to protect individuals who should not be police officers. So maybe to expand on that a little bit. Part of the piece as I've tried to digest everything has been to take stock of the fact that the bill eventually comes due no matter the sins of humankind, eventually you must make penance for those ills. Um, in the circumstances that you mentioned, um, the Treaty of Versailles and then the eventual um, unwillingness to deal with Hitler before it got to a point where they couldn't deny it anymore, eventually caused World War II. The aiding and abetting of Al-Qaeda um, to go against the Russians in 1980 and then not being able to deal with um, terrorism in the 90s has a direct effect on 9-11. Our level of centuries-long systemic racism and white America's fear of black people is where I would put some level of this. We've given permission to the police for too long to be able to act as godlike figures in order to protect us from what we fear. And instead of trying to be more understanding and um, reach out in a better manner, we've chosen to go this way, and eventually the bill comes due. Um, 
we, you know, I, 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 to borrow a phrase Shakespearean, but I remember it from a movie called Good Night and Good Luck. Um, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. We still have some level of culpability beyond just the police department or, you know, what we do, our training programs, the authorization we've given, and the rest of it. And um, with everything that's happened this year, it's been a powder keg boiling for the last probably four or five years. But <clears throat> we're just getting it where we have a confluence of significant events going on between the pandemic and quarantine and um, now this coming to a head. Um, I, I think it's a little bit ironic. I know we chose this movie before a lot of the stuff was happening last week, but uh, this movie, not to kind of bury the lead, is about people after a seminal tragedy and event of their lives trying to reconstruct themselves after probably their defining moment. And for a lot of people in my generation, those that are, you know, between 20 and 40, uh, outside of 9-11, this may be one of the most significant things to happen to you, much like the Depression or World War II was for my grandfather's generation. More your great-grandfather at this point in time. Well, your dad... My dad was born in 41, so he only remembers it as a small child. Your grandparents were born after the war. So it's more of the generation at this point beyond or before them. All right. Well, so, fair enough. I, I don't want to bog it, it, it down too much no, more. It, but, it, and I know, but it does tend to color generations. You can always tell who grew up in the Depression, because they tended to be hoarders. You know, my grandparents grew up in the Depression, and, and um, they never threw anything out. <laughs> Nothing. They had stuff stored everywhere, because you had to be able to reuse and, and use everything. You know, you didn't throw a broom away, because if the handle was any good, you cut the handle off. Because if another handle broke on a broom, you have a handle to replace it. Because you don't want to spend $5 for a new broom needlessly. You know, and that was a defining moment. This ultimately is done two things. One, it's rooted it out. And the other is, is there has been a basic level of apathy among white Americans to this situation. And I don't know if it's apathy as much as it is just diffidence. It doesn't affect me directly, so I don't have to worry about it. Um, but it now is the point in time where people have realized it does affect you and you can't sit by passively anymore and just allow this to continue to happen. And so that's been the biggest change. It has nothing to do with the reaction of, um, uh, African Americans or other minorities it has to do with the fact that finally we have white America saying enough. Well, um, unlike some of our other episodes, this is probably a good uh, spot to cut uh, to our commercial sponsor. Uh, and we'll come back as um, 
ready to talk about movies and at least subjects that are a little bit simple. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one no matter the listener size, which will help your help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. And welcome back uh, yet again to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. Um, so let's get into... Um, the 1946 uh, Best Picture winner, uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. Um, you may not have a closer tie to a specific movie than this one. Um, you know, I normally ask you, you know, what is your relationship to this movie? You have an um, a bound intricacy toward this movie yes my this was one of my dad's all-time favorite movies um growing up as a child um and um i am named dana after dana andrews who was the one of the stars of the film well i think he's the central character i know he didn't get the accolades that um uh Frederick Marsh. Well, not only Frederick Marsh, but uh, also Harold Russell got for this movie. But um, I, I do think um, he was—he's the primary character. You know, they're—they're they're following all three of them, but his story and charisma kind of holds up everything else. So, yes. um, my relationship to this. You, you hadn't seen this before a couple of years ago when you and I first watched it, right? Correct, because for whatever reason, I had never seen the film. Okay. Yeah, so I enjoyed it a couple of years ago. I watched it kind of... Um, I So, I mean, I knew what it was going to happen in this one, but you'd kind of... When we've been going back and watching these, I think I watch it with a different set of eyes than I had before in almost all of these movies and it gives you uh, an even larger appreciation for what um these movies are um we've been studying like we've done two tarantino podcasts two um uh i'm trying to think now um scorsese, scorsese. And uh, we've done at least two Billy Wilder podcasts. Um, I think this is the first William Wilder, but, um, I mean, he's bound to come up multiple times. I think he still holds the record for most nominations for Best Director uh, in the course of his time. I think he has three uh, total awards to 
uh, John Ford's record for. But, um, you know, there are certain directors, and I think here in the near future, we're probably going to get back to Spielberg. Um, I know there are some other um, major directors that we're going to be visiting, but, you know, Weiler is kind of on that pantheon of um, people to visit, and this is this is one of the reasons why, is, is movies like this. Um, notably, this has always been thought of as... Um, a deeply personal film. Um, you and Sarah and I kind of partially did. I never watched the full thing, but um, Netflix had a documentary a few years back, um, notably the five who came back about the five World War II directors: uh, George Stevens, William Wyler. Um, I'm trying to think who uh, John yeah. Ford. Um, oh. Uh, Houston, um, John Houston, yes, yeah. uh, and um, Frank Capra, Frank Capra, yeah, who you know came back and made some of the seminal movies of Hollywood in the 40s and 50s. I mean, Ford was making them uh, uh, in the 30s, and so was Capra that uh, got them acclaim and attention. But um, you know, these are some of the um, pioneers, the pillars of uh, that uh, three-decade run of kind of um golden age hollywood if you will and uh this movie came up as one i know i i do remember from the documentary it's one that steven spielberg says he watches at least once a year because it's just so deeply personal to what that situation was and i i think it'll be reflective in our scores later on but you know it, it's one of the a uh, small handful of extremely novel films dealing with much more complicated subjects. You know, whereas we had a lot of John Wayne films that uh, of World War II where he's, you know, um, being all heroic and whatnot, um, this is much more dealing with a squishy subject matter um, <laughs> that really wasn't explored again for, you know, quite a few decades. Well, just think of it this way, okay? William Wyler um, did a film, a documentary about bombing missions in World War II. Right. And he actually flew dozens of missions on a B-17 during the war. The high, or the rate of uh, death in the Air Corps was... I believe five times what it was in the infantry. The number of planes that crashed, the number of uh, servicemen who died was were side gunners, tail gunners, bombardiers, pilots. Um, you know, even if the plane didn't crash, the chances of you being shot and killed in the plane were high. Weiler actually. Uh, forgot to bring his um, earplugs with him on one flight and ended up irreparably damaging his hearing and ended up being hard of hearing and having to uh, wear hearing aids and have other uh, have assistants help him with uh, direction uh, because of his lack of hearing as a result of this. Now compare this to the great war uh, movie star of all time, John Wayne. Served. Um, in fact, um, 
there was a falling out late in their lives between John Wayne and uh, John Ford, where John Ford basically called uh, John Wayne a wimp for not serving because John Ford filmed documentaries and was was shot at and was in the line of fire repeatedly during the war, including um, doing his own uh, directing from a camera located on Midway Island during the Battle of Midway. So so this is more than just um, a, uh, a film. This is really a tribute trying for, I would assume, for, for Weiler to try to explain his own feelings. You know, and I, I'm kind of... Um, amazed at how positive a reception um, this movie got. Um, we'll get into the recognition here. Well, you know, I, I can actually go through it now. Um, nominated for Best Sound Recording, but it was the only nomination that it failed to win for. One for Best Picture, Best Director for Weiler, Actor Frederick Marsh, Supporting Actor Harold Russell, Screenplay, Film Editing, Score, and then won both an honorary award for... Um, uh, Harold Russell that they created specifically because they didn't think he was going to win supporting actor and um, a memorial award for um, the studio head for even making this movie. I mean, this it, it was also the n- number four grossing movie um, pre-1950 uh, and it, it's still one of these that given its subject matter and everything about it, I'm still somewhat um, amazed at how well it was received and, like, endeared within the, the regular culture. Um, Toland, uh, is it Greg Toland, the cinematographer? I believe he was also the cinematographer for Citizen Kane. Weiler hired him to do the cinemat- cinematography. And he used special uh, camera techniques uh, to have wide shots and to um, do tracking and all kinds of things so that there were less takes. It was more flow through the film. And in order to make it um, more enjoyable, he actually at uh, the theater or the uh, studio's uh, approval went around to movie theaters throughout California and the West Coast and would go into movie houses and make sure their projectors were up to snuff and order replacements for lenses and such so that the cinematography was was uh, maximized for the film. You know, I just, uh, I suppose we should probably get into it, but, um, you know, this is just a hell of a movie. So. Yes. And it's, and it's interesting because the, the, uh, and I cannot remember O'Connor, I think was her name, was the woman who was playing Wilma, um, Harold Russell's fiance in the film. She ended up marrying... William Wyler's um, older brother. 
Okay. I suppose that is a um, odd anecdote. Yeah, they were married for a long time. So, interestingly, too, one other point is is uh, Myrna Loy considers this her greatest film. And in I fact, in fact, um, she uh, was one of the presenters for William Wyler's Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy. Um, and um, <clears throat> Wyler was noted for um, having a lot of takes. Um, and Wyler always, um, Myrna Loy's comment was, is Wyler wanted a lot of takes because he knew when the actors weren't quite getting, giving them everything that they had. All right, so I'll just give the uh, basic summary here. Uh, Fred, Al, and Homer are three World War II veterans facing difficulties as they re-enter civilian life. Fred, played by Dana Andrews, is a war hero who, unable to compete with more highly skilled workers, has to return to his low-wage soda jerk job. Um, say that three times fast. Uh, <laughs> bank executive Al, played by Frederick Marsh, gets into trouble for offering favorable loans to veterans. After losing both hands in the war, Homer, played by Harold Russell, returns to his loving fiancé but must struggle to adjust. Uh, I will say that uh, one of the things I failed to mention with um, the awards for Harold Russell, he is the only person to have ever won two Academy Awards for the same role. And probably will never be topped. Correct. He's also the only person to know that's known to have actually sold one of his Academy Awards. Yes, uh, to pay for his... Um, wife's um i think cancer treatments or something in the early 90s yes and uh, actually um um yeah since 1950 every oscar recipient in order to even be awarded or considered for uh being awarded has to sign an agreement that before they would sell the award they have to offer it back to the academy for one dollar <laughs> Yeah, okay. But since his was issued in 1947, it was never done. I, I'd be curious to know where um, James, what happened to James Stewart's Academy Award um, from uh, the Philadelphia story, because that would have been... Free well, what, he, he won an Academy Award in there somewhere, um, and I know for a fact that he that I knew from watching him on, on uh, Johnny Carson, where the Academy Award was, was in the front window of his father's hardware store in Kansas. Okay. <clears throat> he gave his dad the award. His dad put it in the front window of his hardware store, and it was there for 20-some years. So I don't know whatever happened to it, but it'd be curious to know. You know, like what what do the what does happen to the Academy Awards for people when they pass? Do they get passed down to the family or you know? He did win Best Actor for the Philadelphia Story in uh, forty one. That's what I thought. It was the only time he'd ever won Best Actor. 
which is kind of amazing, almost. But okay, he was nominated five times, but he only won once. So, yeah. Um, I I wonder with the new um, Academy Museum opening up if that would be something, but I I don't know for certain. Um. Like, all of Walt Disney's Oscars, I thought, were um, housed somewhere. Um, like, because, I mean, there's like 40 of them, I think. But I know Brando's uh, from... I'm trying to remember which what, Academy it was. It forgot for their father, was it? The, the, uh, he has two. Well, his second one um, is sitting in the vault at the Academy Award headquarters yet. Well, yeah, because he never showed up to accept it. Oh, he, he sent uh, somebody dressed as an Indian uh, squaw. I think it was an actual Native American. But... Uh, there's some debate about that. Well, either way, he was an odd character. So, <laughs> uh, All right, so... Um, I kind of already gave my, you know what is this movie about, but did you have a separate one that you'd like to just generally discuss, or should we just move right into the uh, regular categories? Well, you can watch, you know, and if you went through this generation, right, and you've seen a little bit of it in the the TV show um, Mad Men. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that there was a, you know, this is what led to the 60s. Okay, when these guys got to be mature adults and had some money, they had seen war, they had seen death, they had survived death, and they lived their lives to the fullest because they knew tomorrow might not come. And so they enjoyed themselves. And so alcohol was plentiful. Um, Sex was something that uh, you could enjoy and... Uh, quite frankly, you were not necessarily tied to certain standards anymore. And I think that that starts to come out to some extent through this film. You start seeing whether it's Frederick March's character uh, being uh, quite a consumer of alcohol throughout the film and uh, other, you know, others struggling in certain ways. Um, I think it, it does come out. Well, I don't know if that, but if that's the central part of this, I think if they had focused like three years down the line, maybe, but, um, I think this is kind of that initial, um, re-entrance. And so you, you kind of get that piece. I, they never really discussed the time frame of the film, but you have to think it's over a couple of months. Oh, easily. Um, just because of, you know, all of the pieces that are happening during this. Um, so, you know, minimum, I would say that it's probably two months, if not three. Um, yeah. You know, could be as many as six because, you know, you go through that whole situation with Homer and Wilma um, to on the back end with uh, their eventual wedding and at the end. So, uh, yeah. all right. Um, we'll jump into the categories. Uh, who do you have as your best performer? Um, I really do think it was Frederick Marsh. 
I, I really thought he had a real quiet presence throughout the film. He seemed to be the guy that was the one everybody in some degree relied upon or whose uh, opinion they all sought. Who's what? His approval. They sought his approval. Oh, I guess him being the father figure. Okay. Yes. Um, I thought you were going to go Weiler, um, but I was still going to zag you a little bit. I think it's Harold Russell. This is notably the only movie he was ever in. Um, I think he was a crowd favorite. His acting job, you know, if he was a trained actor, you could, um, you know, be a little bit more critical. But I think for what he had to do and from where he was coming from, he's just a likable character through this whole thing and understands the exact role that he's playing. Um, I was discussing this the other day during our Back to the Future um uh, episode, but uh, I can't remember. I was just recently listening to something where um, they described how acting is um, just you playing yourself um, playing a character. And that's why most actors, you know, seem roughly the same in their portrayal of certain things because they're playing themselves. I mean, that's been your comment on Jack Nicholson for years, is that he's always playing the same character. Well, Theoretically, I've other than um, maybe um, oh why am I drawing a blank on his name now all of a sudden um, Lincoln my left foot um, Daniel Day Lewis yeah, yeah other than him who in like just can disappear into certain characters I don't know if there's any other actor that like you see and they're not in exact portrayal of themselves whether that's Bogart playing the same character in every movie. Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne, um, you know, going up through Pacino's the same character in every movie. You know, it's it's just one of those things. And that's why, um, you know, you, you start to go after certain characters. I mean, casting becomes, I need somebody that um, reminds me of this. And you just, because you're playing a certain thing. So he, he could disappear into this role because... He was playing himself, playing a character, um, and doing it incredibly successfully. I think this movie has a certain emotional resonance and a, a, a depth that's not there if he's not in the film. And for the fact that Wyler, um, originally the character was just supposed to be going through PTSD, he specifically sought out a m more... Um, physically disabled person uh, to be able to do this role because he thought it would um, translate more with an audience than PTSD where you'd have to explore that a little bit more. He did go into that a little bit, and we'll get to that, but I do applaud the choice because I don't think this movie works as well if he's not in it. I'll agree with that. 
Actually, yeah, he he was a uh, soldier who worked in uh, demolitions, and a detonator was defective and ended up blowing off his hands. Um, and there was a documentary that the military did on retraining of handicapped or disabled soldiers, and he was one of the soldiers in the film. And so that's where Weiler saw him and decided to cast him in that role. I, I just think, you know, all the way from backward to forward uh, for that inclusion, it's not the central narrative of the movie. You know, in fact, it's probably the third banana of what's going on in this movie. But it does provide that just extra layer of um, depth. So, uh, best minor performance. Um, I like Teresa Wright. Okay. Um, I thought for sure you were going to go somewhere else, and I nominated her thinking specifically that we'd had, have at least two diverse opinions. So I'm shocked that we ended up with the same person. Uh, who did you think I'd pick? I thought you might pick like Dana Andrews um, or that you'd go with the natural one because he won Best Supporting Actor, that you'd go with Harold Russell. But uh, I I definitely didn't think you'd pick Teresa Wright. Um, all right, go ahead and give your reasoning for why you picked her and I'll, I'll give mine after that. Well, the part that she's playing, I mean... <sighs> There was a certain element of strength about her, even though she's playing the part of a younger uh, woman in the film. Um, everything I've seen her in up through her very acrimonious departure from working for Sam Goldwyn uh, in 1950, she did a really good job. She was a really good actress. And... Um, uh, always had a presence in the film and never really overplayed her part. And in this one, it would have been real easy to be, you know, to be the love sap, uh, you know, teeny girl, whatever. No, but there was a certain element of quiet determination of strength um, that you could see that ultimately Dana Andrews would fall for because it's somebody that he could rely or lean on. Yeah. Uh, he's trying to adjust. So the first time I saw this, um, like I remember her being in it and I remember what happened, but her character didn't resonate with me as much as it did this time. And it's simply because um, there have been some personal things in my own life, which I'm definitely not getting into anytime soon. Um, but that allow me to understand exactly where she's coming from in a lot of this film that, you know, she's the person that, um, is on the outside and she ends up, um, falling in love with somebody that she's not supposed to, um, that's deeply flawed, but, you know, you're, you're stuck in this almost unwinnable position. And, you know, instead of, again, I agree with you that there could have been like this, um, 
uh, I hate to be cliche, but like Valley Girl portrayal of it where she's so young that um, it could have been overdone where she's just like highly emotional. But because she plays such a strong character for probably two thirds of the movie, when she has that kind of emotional bottoming out um, that sets off the third act of the movie, um, it carries a lot more weight and gives you the uh, impression that, you know, this is meaningful. She wouldn't have come to this had it not been that she feels so strongly. And, you know, it, it gives, again, that, that certain element of weight or, you know, consequence that you wouldn't otherwise have. So, yeah, um, I, I had also, um, <laughs> I mean, I guess from a honorable mention, um, you know, Hoagie Carmichael was always, uh, an entertaining aspect to as a minor performance because he had a, he had a kind of a, of a role to play in this that was, you know, pretty, pretty interesting kind of played well and and uh um you know i i enjoyed his part and i enjoyed him in the film honestly i don't think there's a character that's out of place you could have gone in just about any direction and it would have been credible um the only character throughout the entire movie that you're you come to dislike and it's because you're supposed to dislike that person is um uh why am I drawing a blank? Uh, Fred's wife, Marie, because that marriage is failed. Yeah. And well. so, you know, by just out of somewhat of a default, but she plays her character extremely well. Uh, I, I really just, you know, from Wilma to Homer to Fred to Al to, um, uh, you know, his, his, Millie um, to Peggy, you know, everybody in this seems to fit. And know exactly what they're doing as they're continuing on. So even even Fred Dean's father, you know, because you know you've spent the entire film watching Fred Dean try to struggle to get back. You know, he didn't lead any or dairy. Excuse me, he was a um, he was a bombardier. He didn't lead anybody. He didn't wasn't controlling anybody. He didn't order anybody was not in procurement he goes through the whole list as he's trying to find a job you know and yeah he's down and out in his luck and weiler and i'm sure that this vehicle was put in there specifically his father reads his uh distinguished uh flying cross commendation and then you realize that this guy wasn't, you know, that this guy really was something. And the struggles that he's had to adjust in civil in the civilian life are exemplified by the fact that in the military, he is a huge deal. That's the second highest uh, uh, award you can receive within the Air Force or the Army Air Corps. It's like right below the Medal of Honor, Congressional Medal of Honor. Um it's a big deal to have that, and uh, well, especially I, I remind you of that with the amount of stories that we now have more in hindsight than we did at the time. 
of families finding like war medals or accommodations or other things that their you know father grandfather or otherwise never talked about um it 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 carries a little bit more in hindsight than it probably even did at the time because we know all too well the amount of people who would just never discuss that um and it is a fitting thing i know it's in the first part of the summary but you know he tries to downplay I, I, to a certain extent all three of them try to downplay their service um that they didn't do something that what they felt was heroic they just felt like it was the thing they needed to do um i i do think that's part of why you know most believe it to be the greatest generation but um you know, there there is a quiet strength in that, uh, even if um, you know it, it might have been somewhat unhealthy to try and keep that all repressed. So, all right, um, most charismatic award. Um, I, I will go with Dana Andrews on that. He did. It was obvious. We understand. You understand why. He uh, was being cast in films at that time because he did have a presence on screen. Um, it was a likable presence. Um, so every time I meet and start to like interact with a woman, um, you know, for purposes of social andness and dating, you know, what's the thing you're drawn the most to or whatever? I have maintained for, you know, five or six years. I finally figured it out. There is nothing, nothing that I am more of a sucker for than a good smile. I, I don't know what it is. And I, you cannot watch this movie and don't think Dana Andrews has the best smile out of anybody in this movie. He just, he has that million dollar movie star smile. And it it just breaks through. It's the... It, he's charismatic you're drawn to him as being the central character and no matter what he's doing you always seem to root for him um even though he's getting bad break after bad break after bad break and ultimately that's what you need in order for that last scene to work is for us to root for him to finally get the one good break that he needs yeah yeah, you know, and to some extent, that's kind of the, the epitome of, of his career, because he had a huge problem with uh, addictions to opioids and to alcohol, and uh, it ruined his career. Uh, a lot of directors refused to work with him because he was so unreliable, hungover, not show up, lots of stuff later in his career. But he always seemed to be able to pull back. He'd go on the wagon for a while. And he'd rise up and it got to the point where, you know, where he was making some movies again in the late 50s and into the early 60s. Then he had a relapse and then he was on television and then he ends up his career in the 80s um, doing Love Boat um, and stuff. But again, it's partly just the fact that he was so likable that people would give him a chance, even though his history um, was not the best. You you said opioids there. I do want to try and clarify something because as far as my knowledge, maybe it's my ignorance. Um, 
you know, opioids as we currently understand them, um, I didn't think were really a thing until, like, the 80s and 90s. Oh, no. Uh, opioids would include heroin, would include uh, uh, any kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, morphine is an opioid. Morphine addiction was very common. And I think that's where it came about. He was injured in a film. And so he was, of course, prescribed opioids in order to uh, get through filming. And then he ended up addicted. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the same principle. Um, um, uh, And I'm drawing, uh, I can picture him. uh, Peter Lorre. Uh, was a heroin. Peter Lorre was addicted to heroin, uh, and it got to the point where uh, a lot of directors refused to work with him. He had been really got his break in Hollywood from you know because he had worked with. Um, he was a Hungarian Jew who escaped Nazi Germany in the early thirties. He ran to London and worked with Hitchcock. Uh, when Hitchcock moved to uh, Hollywood in 1940 uh, and then directed Rebecca, he brought Peter Lorre from London with him. But then after a couple of films, um, Peter or he just couldn't work with Peter Lorre anymore for that reason. And um, But he went on to still star in several films and have a long career. But it was it was it was fairly common at the time. Even so, I mean, you know, he's in probably uh, two of the movies that will likely be in our top one hundred, and that's not a bad career. So, uh, all right, uh, that takes us to best scene. Um, I have a few nominees. You can add any you'd like after I kind of go through these. Um, Al giving a loan to a veteran farmer with no collateral. Okay. Uh, Fred protecting Homer by knocking out the customer. Yep. Uh, Homer showing Wilma his, you know, weakest moments. Yes. Peggy waking Fred from his PTSD (laughs) nightmare. Bless you. Yep, sorry. Tried to hit the sneeze button, so Sorry. It's all right. Uh, and uh, Fred visits the uh, fighter plane graveyard. Um, the initial scene where uh, Alfred and Homer fly home. Okay. Um, Peggy deciding to break up Fred's marriage. And finally, their first night home. Um. I like that story or that scene, uh, but you don't have one scene that I really like and thought was one of the pivotal moments of the film is him at the banquet, Fred Mar- or Frederick March at the banquet telling basically his boss to go stick it. See, it's maybe why I, I don't, I have trouble with that scene because he's drunk in order to do it. And I, I just, I don't understand that side of him to a certain extent. I don't buy it as much. 
um, which is why I, I kind of discount Frederick Marsh in this movie um, by comparison to most other people. But um, I, I would agree that it is at least a big scene plot-wise if it doesn't necessarily work for me. It shows the um, the internal turmoil. I mean, earlier in the film, and I apologize for, but this is the film. This is the line. Uh, Last year, kill Japs. This year, make money. Um, it's the um, whole internal conflict that he has about doing what's right versus doing what's necessary. And this was his ability. I think in part he got drunk because he thought this whole thing was a charade. And, you know, the only way he was going to get through it was to drink. And then the drink actually gave him the uh, uh, the strength to stand up and go, you know, I am going to do what's right. And I'm going to basically throw it in your face. And if you don't like it, well, I'll find a different job, basically. Well- in the same regard, I, I will give it some credit because it's kind of going to the point we made before. Uh, they're really only having this banquet or that dinner to celebrate him when he doesn't make much of his own accomplishment for having just served in the war. Um, and that he should be given this platform because he thought he was doing something that just needed to be done. And, you know, as a result, then you get that scene. So maybe I am discounting it a little bit more than I should. And I'll, I'll grant it that. I, I've just never... I think he works better as the father figure in the movie than that um, offshoot of uh, the stuff he has going on at the bank. You know, his character is supposed to um, be adjusting to his family and his family life and being kind of a surrogate dad for Homer and Fred, and, um, you know, it, it just, it kind of takes on that resonance, and I think that's where he works the best, but, you know, I, I can I can credit that scene for being pivotal to the plot point. So. Um, is that what you're choosing for best scene, or were you picking one of the other ones I had nominated? No, I think the, the, the first night home really exemplifies the excitement and the, um, what was taking place. Um, you know, they want to celebrate being home and that was a key moment. And I do think that that's really where you develop your relationship with the characters throughout the film. So I, I picked that for my favorite scene because I, I think it's the most lighthearted of pretty much the entire piece of the movie. And it's where we get some of the uh, biggest comedy moments. But um, the one I eventually picked was is them initially flying home. And just, you know, that, that initial part of them um, flying over Boone City and you know, seeing home for the first time, kind of getting in that, that state of mind of re-entry and all of the complication that comes with it. And, you know, even the car ride up to that point of, you know, you have to go home, you have to reintroduce yourself into this life. You really don't have a choice. Uh, I just, you know, 
there there's a lot more depth to this film but that's really what it was about to begin with and that kind of sets forth the rest of the movie yeah uh, them all getting to know each other and having that relationship and moving forward from that point so um that i already mentioned i took the first night home as my favorite scene uh what was yours um I guess I, I would say that my favorite scene was the the uh, was the uh, scene with him dealing with the farmer and the loan. Okay, why so? Because well, I think it really showed. You know, it, it was it was a moment where he went from being what he was before to realizing what was what the war had done to him and to others and changed his outlook and his perception of where things would be from that moment on. Yeah, I can buy that. Um, it, it does fit well with uh, the other nominee that you made um, because I don't think they work um, well without each other. One doesn't go without you know, but uh, it, it does. Gosh, I am finding it hard to find the right words, but um, give you the certain sense of where his character's at as far as um, reentry to the job. Uh, I guess. Eh, I, I don't know. Yeah. Just think about it this way he was a bank executive. You know, he had to basically make the choice to go into the infantry as an enlisted man. Because given his background, he probably had a college education in order to be in the bank in that kind of a position. Um, and so you would almost automatically be an officer. So he would have been having to make a conscious choice that he wanted to do the grunt work that he wanted to do the stuff where there was real action and not necessarily be uh, an officer. And so that fact in and of itself is significant. All right, so we turn to most indelible moment. Um, for me, it's the, the culmination of um, all three's war experience and how much they felt they accomplished or uh, how much significance they place on it on a personal level, even if they don't celebrate it. And it's Fred knocking out the customer who basically is trying to tell them that their service is meaningless. Yeah. That, um, they, they shouldn't have been fighting the, or the Nazis um, and uh, honestly, you know, I, I'm not as familiar with opinions of the time. Um, it's certainly not somebody that you historically get a perspective from in that post-World War II era. Um, I think for the mo uh, for the way history has been written or, you know, kind of how we remember it, it seems like everybody was universally on board with the war effort and um, against 
you know, um, essentially fascism um, and taking over the world. And, you know, just by laws of, uh, laws of statistics, you know that's not entirely true. So when you're confronted with something of that nature where it undercuts something, like when you have a centrally defining moment like that in your life and somebody's trying to take that out of your identity, I wouldn't expect both of them to respond any less than how they, how they did. And ultimately, Fred um, looking out for Homer by knocking this guy out, um, even at the cost of his own job, um, it, it just kind of sticks with you where the, that's the, the final you know, action of kind of that second act. Okay, I can I can see that. Um, for me, it was the the point where where um, Homer actually lets Wilma see him without his uh, hooks. I think that that is really what all of the servicemen tended to, to to some extent wanted was to be vulnerable to somebody um, but felt guarded in doing so. They didn't want to feel vulnerable to anybody. And the moment he let himself down to that, it opened him up and allowed him to actually love. Well, and to feel that he could be. I think that's the bigger part of it. I, I don't think he had a problem with loving Wilma. He, and it's a problem for all of us, is that some of us just have, you know, I've had this a lot in my life. You don't always feel you're lovable. You know, that there's something wrong with you, that, that ultimately somebody, if you show them your biggest flaws, that um, you're going to uh, be scorned for it. And yeah. it, it does provide, again, that certain emotional weight that um, you wouldn't otherwise see. So, all right. So before we get into um, best lines and the scoring, uh, we'll take our usual natural break. All right. Uh, that takes us to uh, best lines. So I have a couple of nominees um, this is one where I'm going to withdraw our normal funniest line category because, you know, there were a couple of light moments and some places where I laughed, but I, I don't think this is that kind of movie. So, all right. Um, Millie Stevenson, we never had any trouble. How many times did I tell you I hated you and believed it in my heart? How many times did you tell me you were tired of me, that we were all washed up? How many times did we have to fall in love all over again? Yeah, yeah, I you know it, that one does stick out to me in that that um, scene where uh, um, Peggy's trying to determine herself to break up Fred's marriage, and it's just simply you know you sometimes lack a certain level of perspective um, when you've never been in a full relationship or been married for an extended period of time when you're younger or you're single. You know, sometimes you don't understand how difficult it is to maintain such a long relationship. So it's it's a reality check of sorts. 
Well, and most people don't seem to understand that um, there's very few people that you can really be your meanest and nastiest to because you completely let your guard down with one person, usually your spouse, and that's the problem. I mean, you say and do things to your spouse that you would never do to other people. Well, that might be a lesson I'll eventually have to learn, but I, I certainly don't understand it in the same way. So, well, and you, re you regret it even more than if it were anybody else. But it just, you know, when it becomes, you know, it's just it just happens. It's because you don't feel like you have to put on a persona with your spouse that you do with other people. So the next one, uh, Homer explains his character arc. I didn't see much of the war. I was stationed in a repair shop below decks. Oh, and I was in plenty of battles, but I never saw a Jap or heard a shell coming at me. When we were sunk, all I know is there was a lot of fire and explosions, and I was on the top sides and overboard, and I was burned. When I came to, I was on a cruiser. My hands were off. After that, I had it easy. That's what I said. They took care of me. Fine. They trained me to use these things. I can dial telephones. I can drive a car. I can even put nickels in the jukebox. I'm all right, but, well, you see, I've got a girl. She knows what happened to you, doesn't she? Sure, they all know. They don't know what these things look like. Yeah, yeah. That is a good line. Well, it just, it gives his character arc within uh, a few lines. All, all you'll need to know about where he's going to be for the rest of the movie is in that introduction. And I, I think it's no coincidence it's in the early stages of this movie. So, uh, next one. Al um, reacting to uh, Homer's homecoming. Uh, they couldn't train him to put his arms around his girl or to stroke her hair. Yeah. Another just, you know, emotional resonance line. So, And the final one I had, um, you know, the final conversation between Marie and Fred. What do you think I was doing all those years? I don't know, babe, but I can guess. Go ahead. Guess your head off. I could do some guessing myself. What were you up to in London and Paris and all those places? I've given you every chance to make something of yourself. I gave up my own job when you asked me. I gave up the best years of my life. And what have you done? You flopped. Couldn't even hold that job at the drugstore. So I'm going back to work for myself, and that means I'm going to live for myself too. And in case you don't understand English, I'm going to get a divorce. What have you got to say to that? Don't keep Cliff waiting. Yeah. So, did you have any other nominees? Um, I do like the line about, um, you know, where it's uh, Frederick March and uh, his uh, wife 
or in in Myrna Loy, and they're discussing. Didn't we had a couple of kids, didn't we? You know, and then goes on kind of like that uh, little uh, parry and thrust um, back and forth, kind of playful. I, I enjoyed that those set of lines. All right. Any other ones that stick out to you? Well, I do enjoy too, as I pointed out earlier, the the scene of him at the at the uh, or Frederick March at the um, uh, banquet, and he tells the story about, you know, well, I, you know, that's going to be a big risk to take that hill, sir, and we don't have any collateral. So. Yeah, uh, I know that that fits in with what you've already been talking about uh, quite a bit. So uh, as far as best line, I think I'm going to go with that um, final exchange between um, Marie and Fred, just because, you know, as I've discussed it before, it's kind of that summation piece. Um, My honorable mention will go to um, Millie Stevenson's uh, We Never Had Any Trouble. Uh, What do you have down I'm sorry, I was just thinking of a particular thing, and uh, I missed the question, actually. I'm sorry. I don't do that very often while we're, we're recording these, but I was thinking about some other aspect of the film that just popped into my head. Well, go ahead. Well, no, I, I, I you know, one of the unsung heroes of the entire film is Butch's Place, the bar. Yeah. You know, and I just stopped in my head. You know, the number of times that men, and uh, especially of my age, just to have a place to go and to have friends, close friends that you share an experience with and share a level of camaraderie is amazing. And that's something that those three had. And in that location that I think that there's a longing for a lot of men uh, in their lives. So um, I'll make two comments off of that, that um, I think part of the reason that's resonating with you as much as it is. Um, Number one, we've been incredibly antisocial now for three months um, with a full out uh, quarantine. And it's quite possible we're not, um, socializing in the same way that we had been for another three months minimum, um, if if not longer. So, you know, we're we're rediscovering how much we need to be social creatures in an era where, um, yes, we were able to, and you and I have been doing all of these podcasts via Skype. Um, you know, a ton of the other ones are doing it uh, via Zoom or whatever. And um, you're able to connect, but it's only so much. And that there is something to be said for being social. But the other aspect of this, and I don't discount it, and why it resonates with you, is you just binge-watched all 11 seasons of Cheers. The entire thing of Cheers is going to some place where everybody knows your name. I mean, that's the whole show. But, you know, I don't care. You, you talk about any group of people or any sitcom 
and you have a central binding force in um, that sitcom. Mary Tyler Moore, The Office, and Parks and Recreation are bound by workplace comedies, even MASH to a certain extent. Um, Cheers and Friends and How I Met Your Mother are social hangout groups um, as uh, camaraderie. Um, and then you have, you know, a couple of other, but there's always some type of backbone, um, family ties or, um, all in the family. It's, you know, having to do with the family structure, um, uh, family matters. Is that the one with uh, Urkel from the nineties, uh, the Cosby show. So whatever it is, there's a structural group of people that have a central backbone of being together in some capacity. In that particular show, that's what it was. But, you know, there's a reason that bars and coffee shops and other things, because as much as we uh, think social media can replace some of our interactions, there are a lot of people still seeking community in this world. And it's something that um, we should not just um, recognize, but appreciate. So the point is taken. Well, anyway, that was just, I lost track because I was just thinking about that aspect of it. So, um, I don't know about you. I don't really have any remaining questions on this movie. It's, it's pretty compact. Um, there, there really isn't any major open-ended thing like it's, uh, you know, a plot hole or, um, science fiction or something that can't be explained. It's pretty, um, tightly wound. So, um... We'll just do the grading here um, briefly. Uh, we'll grade this one out and uh, cut it there, if that's good with you. That sounds fine. So, um, Legacy. Uh, I'll just give my background. This is one that um, I think is a player in Golden Age Hollywood, but it's not on the same level or as appreciated as some of the movies around it. Um, Casablanca, Citizen Kane, Gone with the Wind are all within that uh, three to four year window just before this. Um, It's not as celebrated as uh, some of the films of the 50s just after it or even the early 60s. Um, So as much as this one has a legacy, I think it's to the general public kind of lost. Um, And that's kind of sad. Um... But I do think, and I, I take it back to that, um, or where I started made that point before, that you know Spielberg in that documentary we saw um, highlights this is a film he's going back to every year. I think it has an appreciation among those in film circles that it uh, doesn't to the general at large. So for that reason, I will give it, I have to knock it down a few points, but I'm going to give it eight and a half. I'll actually agree with that. I was going to go eight, but I'll go with eight and a half because I think mine may have been a little low. I just, I I still think there's something there. It just doesn't have the history tale that, you know, maybe I believe it should have. And so, you know, as a result, it's kind of unfortunate, but oh well. So impact significance. Again, this movie one, I think, eight Academy Awards. Let's see here. Let me just count them once. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So with both the honorary and memorial awards for Goldwyn and um, Harold Russell, uh, nine awards at 
1947 um, for this movie. Um, I mean, that's a huge total. Um, it was probably the movie of um, post-war readjustment. Um, and I, I still do think it has resonance among you know, a film student or like certain circles of film critics and appreciation. So I actually put it as a nine and a half. I had it nine, but I'll go nine and a half. And I'll tell you, if you talk to a veteran who's not familiar with the film and you tell them what the film is about, almost all of them are like, well, you really should see that film. This is one of these uh, films for, for whatever reason is not highly publicized, but when you watch it, you go, wow, why is this film not more popular? Yeah, it's one of those, it's sometimes unusual which ones gain traction and which ones don't. So, um, but yeah, I, I do think this should be higher. And, you know, it was the number four grossing film uh, of all time before <laughs> 1950. Um, this thing got played again and again and again. It got re-released multiple times. I, I just think with the uh, public at large, but it's lost some luster over the years, which is why, you know, the legacy is lower than that. Um, for the same reason, I had nine and a half for novelty. Um, some of the things they're talking about, Fred's PTSD dream that he keeps having over and over, just the fact that they're even talking about it. Um, you know, oh, I, I, you know, yeah. In the film, in, in uh, Five Came Back, it talked about how John Huston wanted to f do a film about treatment for PS or PTSD. And he had, had to jump through hoop after hoop after hoop. And then he did the film, and the army quashed it, wouldn't allow it to be released because it went too far. And they thought it would give them or put them in bad light. Uh, subsequently, it was years after that he was able to finally release the film. So this is cutting edge to be talking about it. Well, and, you know, I, I know that there were a few films regarding reentry post-World War One that um, gained a little bit of traction, but this was the first one out of the gates post-World War Two, and really resonated with the country as a whole. So I, I don't think it, it anything other than its subject material, well, and the fact that they're featuring a disabled veteran. I mean, that alone, it bumps it extremely high up the list. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not something that you were going to do, put a non-actor for what they're capable of doing into the role and have it be so incredibly successful. So, I, again, I went with a nine and a half. I'll agree with you. <laughs> uh, interesting. Okay. So that's already three born out. So uh, classicness, um, there are a few pieces, and you already kind of got into it a little bit. Um, there are some racial slurs in here that are a product of the time uh, that obviously don't age well. Um, I understand its place within history. But, you know, also the fact that Boone City um, looks to be exclusively white. 
for being a supposedly metropolitan city of the dead. I understand that, like, this is well, 1920s it, Hollywood, but still. It, it, it was pretty white, even though it was supposed to be metropolitan. It was supposedly Cincinnati. I see. Okay. And so Cincinnati being a border city with the, with uh, Kentucky, um, it tended to be a little more segregated than most uh, northern cities. Well, I mean, eh, I, I won't get into that one. That, that one's for a different podcast at a different time. But um, what did you have down for classicness? I had an eight simply because it is a certain aspect dated. The relationship with women, um, you know. Um, yeah, the alcoholism. I, I had a tough one with this one. I, I don't think it's terrible comparative to some other movies where there are some like, I didn't have any real cringy moments, but there are some things that aren't, great about this you can say that yeah i had it down as a nine but i i think you know the average adjustment between ours at an eight and a half is probably about right okay so uh finally rewatchability this is the second time i've watched the film and i regret not having watched it before uh, this is a film that I could easily watch once a year and enjoy. So I, I would have to give it about an eight and a half or a nine. I'm with you and I'm having a difficulty where, like, I don't want to give tens, but I think nine would be, like, if I, I put it at a grading scale, nine would be if I'm visiting this movie, like, once every six months. So if I'm going to visit it like once a year or once every two years, you know, then we're talking about eight to uh, seven to eight in that range. So I put it at about a seven and a half. I don't know. I probably would be just fine showing this to new people all the time, but I don't know if it's one I'm going out of my way to watch. So I had it at a seven and a half. Well, and I think that it's one of these that if I thumbing through the station and I see it on, I would sit and watch, you know, the last 45 minutes of the film. Yeah, and I could buy that. Honestly, I think it's a lot more rewatchable than um, other films on some of the same subject material because all of the characters, ultimately, you find them to be redeemable or people that are deserving, and you root for all of them. And, you know, sometimes it's just good to have a you know, people that you want to root for. So, so you had an eight and a half or a nine then just so I can average this out. Uh, eight and a half. All right. So then we'll average it out to an eight, which I, I think that's probably about fitting. So, um, the audience score was a 93. So that puts it at 9.3 points. So, um, final score is a, uh, 53.3. And let me just pull up the other list here. Um, once. Normally I have this pulled up well in advance, but.
so 53.3 uh, puts it at number two on the list. Um, we've actually had the two top movies on the list uh, are the last two that we've had episodes on. So it just comes uh, below Back to the Future from uh, our earlier in the week. Oh, Okay. I think that's going to be one where we may have to revisit because um, it's heavily weighted by a couple of super fans of that particular movie. So, <laughs> okay. So I at some point we may we may have to revisit that one to give it a little bit better um, weighting, but uh, that's that's not terrible. I, we need nominees um, to revisit at some point, kind of um, MythBusters style. So. I still think that, uh, and I, we've talked about this off air, but I, I'm just going to throw it out. And if anybody at all thinks this would be a good idea, I, I think we should do an episode where we discuss character actors. You know, we could probably create an uh, easy bonus episode on that at some point here in the near future um, and kind of just uh, give our, our ranking of that but i maybe save that for season two yeah because i think we need to have a third person yeah if it was everybody from gabby hayes to walter brennan to um uh um, i i already know who who i think is probably one of the top five who john cazell okay I mean, you think about John Cazale's four-movie run that he has. He is um, in both of the first two Godfather movies, um, most notably in Godfather Part Two. He's um, the other bank robber in Dog Day Afternoon and in The Deer Hunter. <laughs> okay. Like, you know, he's, he's one of these storied people. And he's, you know, also notably the love of uh, Meryl Streep's life. But, um, you know, it, it's just one of those things. So, <laughs> OK. So, but, you know, I think there are a couple of others that you could really nominate as like um, great supporting actors. Um, Ward Bond. You know, I know he hasn't been in a ton of them, but, like, every time he is, because he's never the lead, but J.K. Simmons is just fantastic. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I always enjoy, too, uh, some of the other ones. Um, um, uh, Stanley Tucci. Is yeah. A, um, you know, one of those actors that's just always... You know, always does a phenomenal job, whatever he's doing. You know, as good as she was as a leading lady, though, too, I think um, Catherine Hepburn doesn't always get as much credit as she was probably due as a, a really a great supporting character. Um, normally, she's playing second fiddle in almost everything she's doing, but the amount of times that um, I think she made um, Spencer Tracy or whomever, you know, Bogart, uh, she was working against better because of how good she was. You yes. know, that, that's one of those. So anyway, so anyway, it's a good idea for later on, but that's probably a great place to cut for this.
I wish we could talk longer, but uh, I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Um, as usual, please rate, subscribe, and review um, our uh, podcasts. Four and five stars would be greatly appreciated. Um, you know, if we uh, continue to increase our international audience, I think we're now in 15 different countries. Um, we may have to start creating some swag or merch. Um, so I don't know if we have any key phrasing on the uh, podcast episode, but uh, to all of our loyal uh, fans out there right now, uh, we did have our first international podcast this week. So uh, we'll see how that one goes. It, it took me a while to ep- edit that episode, but uh, thank you everybody that's been listening and uh, supporting the show. And um, next week I'm planning to be back with you for Roman holiday. And then uh, we haven't decided what we're going to do after that yet. So I'll have some options for you upcoming. So um, thanks ever. Go ahead. No, what, what, uh, what episode number will that be? Roman holiday. Yeah. 18. So we got a couple more to get to 20. Okay. And our special um, halfway mark is uh, episode 25, which we haven't announced yet. So, um, but that should be upcoming in a few weeks. Uh, Hopefully we have a couple of other guest host surprises coming up soon. So um, until next week, have a great week, everybody.